We're looking at Mark 8 tonight, and I guess we'll read from verse 27, although we looked at the first half of this passage last week, and I'll read uh, through 9 verse 1. Starting in Mark 8, 27, it's on page 1003 if you're using the Pew Bible. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Remember now they're heading south, heading to Jerusalem. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him, uh, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, in this teaching, we see two things. We see that you yourself were willing to go to the cross for us. But we also see, as we're going to reflect this week, the great cost of discipleship. Let us be faithful disciples who listen to your word carefully, who count up the cost of following you, and nevertheless set out on the road after you. Challenge us with your word, shape us, comfort us. Amen. Just a quick review, since some of us were here last week, some weren't. Uh, remember the kind of metaphor for this section of the journey. The image is Jesus the optometrist. Remember, the blind man doesn't see very clearly the first time, and so then needs a second touching of Jesus' hand. And likewise, the disciples, they're starting to see, but things look like trees, not people. They need their eyes opened so they can see and understand. So Peter, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus accepts that. He doesn't challenge it. He says, yeah, that's right. But he charges them saying, don't go around telling other people this. Why? Because he needs to teach them what the Messiah really comes to do, what the Messiah's true mission is. It's not to take up arms and fight the Romans. It's not to enforce a certain strict interpretation of the law. 
what the Messiah comes to do is to suffer many things, to be rejected, to be killed, and after three days to rise again. It's central to his mission, but it's too much for poor Peter. Remember, Peter thinks he's doing a good thing, rebuking Jesus. He thinks maybe Jesus is just feeling discouraged. No, Jesus, we're going to win. Don't worry. Don't say that. But what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And that's where we want to pick up this week. What does it look like to set our minds on the things of God? And so we're going to be looking from verse 34 to the 9-1. Jesus calls the crowds to him along with his disciples. That's interesting. He's traveling with his disciples, but apparently there's other people round about. Uh, Peter kind of takes Jesus aside. It's in private. He rebukes Jesus in pri- or Peter in private. But then he's saying this is something that everybody needs to hear. So he calls the crowds together. And he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What's interesting about that is uh, the, the cross kind of, this take up your cross, that's almost been domesticated in Christianity. But in Mark's gospel, this is the first time the word cross is used. Up to this point, the disciples have been with Jesus perhaps several years. They've traveled around in boats. They've camped out. They've been all over the place. They've been to Jerusalem. This is the first time a cross is mentioned in Mark's gospel. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Okay, you're heading with Jesus to Jerusalem. He's talking about the Son of Man. He's talking about, you know, the kingdom's going to come. That's good stuff. But now all of a sudden, a cross. What's that about? It, it, it should hit you. Jesus may well know that the way he's going to die is on a cross. We're going to see a little bit more in these two more predictions. He may know the exact manner of his death. But probably the reason he's talking about taking up your cross here As they've been walking along, heading towards Jerusalem, they probably see people crucified along the way. Uh, I think I already mentioned Spartacus last week, so we'll go back to that again. It it is a historical fact that Spartacus, along with 6,000 other slaves, were all crucified along the road heading into Rome. Of course, they're not in Rome at that point, but that would have been um, 50 or 60 years before Jesus' time. It was not an uncommon thing to see especially uh, uh, rebellious slaves revolts against the government. That's the kind of thing. If it looks like you're rocking the boat, you're overturning the government, crucifixion is used because it's a brutal, painful death to make an example of someone so that they don't challenge Rome's authority. Now, what's Jesus saying? If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Okay, if the point last week's section was that the king is going to the cross and that's where he wins his victory, we could summarize this week's section as the king's followers also must take up their crosses. As far as we can tell, take up your cross was not a Jewish figure of speech. It's it's original to Jesus. He's the first teacher. Uh, Certainly it would not have been pagan philosophers talking that way. He's the first teacher to use this phrase. And yet today, even secular people will talk about their cross to bear. Uh, I feel like the squeaky board's moving. (laughs) He was on this side more, but uh, maybe I just need to come forward a bit. There we go. Maybe. Uh, 
Uh, so he coins this figure of speech, and the image is so arresting that even secular people talk about it. What's he saying when he says, take up your cross? What do you guys think he's getting at here? Yeah, Noah? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Yeah, I certainly think that's part of it is being willing to bear shame to recognize, um, yeah, that there's a, um, uh, well, like he talks about whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, I'll be ashamed of him that there's, you know, what sort of honor do you really care about at the end of the day? What sort of shame do you really care about? Yeah, good, good thought, Noah. Uh, Nate, were you raising your hand? Yeah. 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 Certainly some Roman soldiers don't want to carry it. Yeah. Yeah, so carrying that cross, uh, going to death even. Certainly it's a vivid image of that sort of principle from Proverbs that we were seeing this morning about disadvantaging ourselves for the good of others. Yeah, he's saying the path to discipleship is in a sense like a death sentence. It's like a death march. Jesus spells this out in four ways then. He makes four arguments for why this is the case. Do you see there in the next couple of verses, each argument begins with the word for. And if you really reflect on these, Jesus is, in fact, uh, this is going to sound superficial, but he really is a profound teacher. You can't get around these arguments, okay? No matter where your hope is, if you really reflect on these arguments and chew on them, it's hard to get around them. The first argument's there in verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's so paradoxical. Whoever wants to try and save their life, they try and hold on to it, they lose it. But whoever's willing to lose their life will in the end save it. Jesus, the word Jesus uses here for life, it's not the usual word. It's the Greek word psyche that we get our word psychology from. So it's about your soul, your inner life. He's saying if your main goal in life is to save your psyche, your sense of self, your identity, that you're trying to construct perhaps by achievements or possessions or promotions or accomplishments. If that's where you're founding your psyche, that's how you're trying to save it. You're going to actually lose your very self. But by losing your very self for Jesus and the gospel, it's the only way to construct a lasting psyche, a lasting identity to ground it. C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity illustrates the point by saying it's good to be healthy, but if you make health main thing, your big thing, that's, that's your central identity, that's where your psyche is grounded, you actually develop a sort of psychosis. Okay, exercise is good, but a bodybuilder who's obsessed with their own appearance is not good. I think we intuitively recognize that. Jesus' point is this, there are things of man and things of God, 
And if you remember, that's what we said earlier. If we set our minds on the things of man, uh, we wind up like Peter, set our minds on the things of God. If we build our identity on the foundation of things of man, we'll discover that they ultimately do not last. Beauty and health and wealth are all fleeting. But Jesus was rejected, died, and rose again for you. That's what he just told his disciples. I'm going to the cross for you. And if you build your identity on that, on this sort of need-free, gracious gift love that's given sheerly for love's sake, not because we deserve it, not to get anything in return, if that's where our psyche, our, our self is grounded, that's something that will last. A little bit longer quote from, from Lewis. He puts the point like this, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have, uh, nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look to yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him, and with him everything else is thrown in. Or more succinctly, Jim Elliott, uh, the missionary who died for his faith, was martyred for his faith in South America in the 20th century, said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Okay, giving up your life, you can't keep your life. You're going to lose it one day or another eventually. To give that up, to get what you cannot lose, Christ himself, that person is no fool. So Jesus' first argument is if you, if you try and hang on to your life, it actually turns into a sort of psychosis that you're self-centered. But if you lose your life for his sake in the Gospels, you actually save it. He continues his second argument. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose himself? Even if we got everything we ever wanted, we got into our dream school, we got our dream job, married our dream spouse, drove our dream car. What does it matter if we lose ourself in the process? If you made it to the end of that movie, Tree of Life with Brad Pitt, it's a long movie. It took us two nights. But if you made it to the end, remember Brad Pitt's kind of a stern father, a bit overbearing. And then he spends all of his time working in the oil refinery that he manages. And at the end, the refinery gets closed down. And he says, he's walking around the factories, it's closed down. And he says, did I miss the glory of it all? He's so worried about his kids being well-behaved and stuff. He misses the glory of the gift that children are. In a sense, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, what is a profit you? You got the job, you got the promotion, you ran the company, you gained everything and yet lose yourself. His third argument, for what can a man give in return for his soul? It's a good question. No matter what you accumulate or earn, how could you possibly buy an inner life? It simply can't be done. What would you give? Finally, Jesus returns to his basic point. There's things of God and things of man. And so his fourth argument is, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words 
in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. Undoubtedly, you are judged every day. You're judged by your community, by your peers. You're judged by the world and its standards, by friends, by family. But you will also just as assuredly one day be judged by the Son of Man himself. And so this final question Jesus poses is what court is going to be the ultimate judge over you? Are you going to let the court of human opinion be the deciding factor for how we live our lives? If so, we will be disappointed on the day when Christ comes. There is undeniably embarrassment and shame that comes with embracing a crucified king as our Lord. As we talked about this morning, uh, uh, trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him. If Fear the Lord and uh, turn from evil. If you're following what the Lord teaches, there's going to be times when we're out of step with our culture roundabout. And it's embarrassing, and it can be, you can be shamed for it. But I'd much rather face the shame and embarrassment that could be heaped on us by the world roundabout than have Christ, our crucified Lord, be ashamed of me when he comes in his glory. Denying ourselves is not an easy lesson to learn. And unfortunately, it seems to be a lesson that we have to continually be taught Okay, you have to keep coming back to it. We're going to see that over the coming weeks is Jesus is on this, let's say it's 20, 30 day journey with his disciples and they keep coming back to the same lessons over and over again. He teaches the disciples, deny yourself. And then they're saying, but which one of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom? Deny yourself. But can I sit at your right hand? And can I sit at your left hand? It takes time to learn. The disciples are a picture of ourselves. It's not an easy lesson to learn. Denying ourselves means dying to our own ambitions and goals. Denying ourselves means using the power and authority that we have been given for the good of others, not just for our own good. Denying ourselves means at times disadvantaging ourselves for the advantage of others. This passage ends, though, with good news. The good news is that although the king's followers must take up their crosses and deny themselves, there is glory on the other side of suffering. Do you see there at the end of verse 38? It's not just one day the Son of Man will come, but he will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is he's teaching them denying, uh, being rejected and dying is essential to his mission. But as he said last week that we looked at, so is rising again. And now we see how the passage ends. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father. And so Jesus' mission and the path of discipleship that he calls us on to follow him, it leads through suffering, but it leads ultimately to the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father given to us. And so Jesus concludes, truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I don't think that means that some of those disciples standing there would live to see Christ's second coming. Obviously they didn't. 
Uh, it's interesting in all four of the Gospels, that statement is put before the transfiguration. And so it seems that the gospel writers anyways, Jesus' early disciples, understood the transfiguration to be seeing a glimpse of the kingdom of God come in power. It means that the disciples themselves would see this upside-down kingdom ethic that Jesus is teaching transform their world. Many of the disciples Jesus is talking to literally had to take up their crosses Before too long, the brutal Roman Empire itself, nevertheless, was transformed by Christians, using power not for their own good, but for the good of others. And so we're challenged with this question at the end. Are we going to focus on ourselves, only to become more mean until we ultimately lose everything? Or do we look to Christ? Do we follow him? Do we deny ourselves, perhaps even lose our lives? for Christ's sake, and yet save our lives in the end. Will you set your mind on the things of man and use your power and ability and authority and money only for your own good? Or will you set your mind on the things of God, die to yourself and use your power and ability and authority and wealth, all that you have, your resources, for the good of others? It's the cost of discipleship, and it is expensive, and yet there's glory on this path as well. Any other comments or observations? Sorry, I didn't put in as many questions as usual this week. Are you smiling because I never put in as many questions as usual? (laughs) I did really well at the beginning of Mark. Good questions. (laughs) Well, let's turn then to our time of prayer. Are there requests or thanksgivings to share with our group.